1 John 4.1 says to test the spirits, and I would in, encourage you to listen closely this morning uh, for a lot of, as always, but uh, we in the Basham household are a little sleep deprived right now. We uh, got a call Thursday evening and we're fortunate to bring a, a young boy into our home that uh, he doesn't treasure sleep the way that we treasure sleep. His eating habits are on a little different scale than ours. We like to eat in the morning at noon at about six and he doesn't like, he likes to eat whenever he's ready to eat. And so, uh, and, and I think, you know, we, it's a privilege. And it's just a reminder, though. His name is William. Sorry. Tired. Emotional, but it's a picture of the gospel. That little guy is me. That little guy is me and before God. And Christ emptied himself for me. To obviously, to the glory of God. Don't hear me say that. To the glory of God, but I was a beneficiary of that. And it's a reminder at the same time of just how selfish I am, how wretched I am at times. Um, and God uses a seven-month-old boy to remind us You know, that, that's what it's about. That's, that's, I was the orphan. And God adopted me through the blood of his son, through faith in the blood of his son, and just a reminder, and just um, the selflessness of our Savior, and, and oftentimes the selfishness. I, I told my wife, if, I think I told some of y'all, if I ever have any information that you need to get out of me, just take away my sleep, and I'll tell you as soon as I can to get back to bed. Like, seriously, if I was a spy, I'm not. But if I was, and I knew some information, just that's why I'm not a spy, because all you need to do, forget, the, forget all that other stuff. Just, just don't let me go to bed. Or wake me up at 2 in the morning screaming. It's like, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to tell you let me go back to bed? Anything, anything, but... Um, but it's a joy, even if it's for the weekend, just a reminder. And I think that's why in, in James 1, he says in verse 26, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to, vi to visit widows and orphans in their distress. And um, so just test the spirits. I say all that to say I'm, I'm tired, and uh, I, I want to be careful about what comes out of my mouth this morning. This will be a, a test. Test the spirits, test the spirits. But first, first Peter... We saw last week that Peter gives us many, many examples, but specifically there he gives us examples in 1 Peter 3 of why it's better to suffer according to God's will, to suffer for doing what is right, than it is to suffer for doing what is wrong. That if we're going to suffer, let it be because of our obedience and our allegiance and our loyalty to Christ, not because of our sin. And what we see today is in response to that proof that, that our lives are to be living proofs of that reality. And, and Peter, Peter says there in verse 1, we'll see it in a minute, therefore, everything that he is saying is built on the conclusion of what he's just said. Stand, and, and, and what he's going with is this, is stand firm in grace. It's better to suffer for doing what is right in God's eyes than to suffer for sin. Stand firm in that. No matter how you're persecuted, no matter how you're received, no matter what you, who comes against you or why they come against you, here's the point. Stand firm in grace. Stand firm. It's better to suffer for standing up to the word, for obeying the word, than it is to suffer for disobeying the word. That's the point. Peter is making that point. And, and today he builds on that and, and shows what our lives will look like if we believe that. 
And, and, and as is the case in all throughout the Bible, everything that Peter says here is built first on what Christ has accomplished. It's built on grace. And, and the writers in the New Testament do that regularly. The first 11 chapters of Romans, what God has done, 12 through 16, how we respond. Galatians is three chapters of what God has done. The last three, how to respond. First Ephesians, one through three, what God has done. Follow, following what we should do. That, that's, everything is built. In the Greek, you would see what we see today are, 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 are would be classified what would be called imperatives. They would be commands, but they're always based upon the indicative. What, what has God done? The indicative always comes first. What God has done, therefore. God has offered grace in crucifying His Son to Though our sins were as scarlet, Isaiah 1.18 says, He will wash them white as snow. That's the indicative. Okay, now what? And this is about seeing ourselves as believers in a new light. To see ourselves in a new, proper way. And, and based upon who we are, we now can and should live in the way that Peter lays out. We should make life choices. We should make choices based on who we are in Christ, based on the fact that we have been washed, that we have been redeemed, that we have been chosen, that we have been adopted, that we have been given a new identity, that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the God's marvelous kingdom of light. Live accordingly. Let that new identity guide. And you see it there in your, in your main point, just trying to summarize just how Peter is building this. Believers must arm themselves with a resolve. That's the word for the day. That's going to be the word for, for the, 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 really the, 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 the whole of 1 Peter. The key verse is 5.12. Stand firm in grace. Resolve to stand firm in grace. Resolve to stand firm in grace. A resolve that is rooted in the gospel and all that Christ has accomplished on behalf of believers through faith. And in turn, fight sin at all costs. Pursue holiness. Knowing that one day, one day, believer and non-believer, you're not exempt. You're going to stand before God, all of us, and give an account for our lives. Resolve to stand firm. No matter what we face, Resolve to stand firm in the grace of God. That's Peter's point. That's Peter's goal. That believers stand firm. That they resolve to stand firm in grace no matter what it brings them. No matter what it costs them. And I want to, Peter writes that I want to break down just verses 1 through 6 today. So we'll see that, that. That suffering and even death is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of defeat. It's actually a sign of sonship. And we need resolve that we'll stand firm in that. that. That we'll turn away from sin, that we'll spend our lives seeking to glorify the one whom has adopted us through the death of his son. This is how we are to live before a watching world. Resolve. Stand firm in grace. And the first thing, look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, as John read, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, again, he's pointing back to what he just said, specifically in 3.18, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Here's what Peter is saying in verses one and two, that, that he wants us to see, he wants believers to see that, that while constantly looking at the cross, believers must purposely, purposely seek to arm themselves with a resolve that pursues holiness over sin. Pursues holiness over sin. Trusting that God's will is always more delightful than sin, no matter the cost. It's always more delightful to obey God than to, than to give in to sin, no matter the cost. 
Peter is writing to a group of believers that live outside of their homeland. They are sojourners. They are aliens. They are the minority. They, they are being persecuted. And you, you think some of them may have been wondering if it was worth it? You think some of them may have been wondering, is it worth it to live as Christ and to suffer for Christ? You ever wondered that? You look around and seemingly the world is prospering. Non-believers are prospering. The psalmists struggle with that. Go read the Psalms. That, that's often Satan's ploy. It's often Satan's goal in persecution to get us to doubt God's goodness. To get us to doubt God's faithfulness. To get us to doubt whether God truly loves us. Again, that, I, th I love the fact that Daniel sang that song, Standing on the Promises of God, because when those times come, that's where we have to go back to, the promises of God. Reminding ourselves of the promises of God. It's, it's very probable, possible, that Peter's readers are wondering, why am I enduring this? Why am I suffering for this? Why not just go with the flow and enjoy the pleasures? Why not? Why keep fighting sin? And Peter understands that that may be a temptation amongst believers. And Peter knows, he understands that, and, and he offers what we will see here in the coming, coming weeks as a response to that. And he says to believers, arm yourselves with the reality of Christ's own suffering and what it accomplished. Arm yourselves with that. Arm yourselves with God's grace. The, the word there, arm yourselves, it is a military term. It, it, it literally means to put on your armor for battle. The word means purpose. It means intention. It, it shows that fighting sin, it shows that pursuing holiness first begins with the will. It begins in the mind. And the intent you see in, in verse 2, is so that you'll live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Live for God, not sin. Live for the glory of God, not the pleasures of this world. Resolve to do that, no matter what you face, no matter what consequences come. Holiness is a struggle. We have been declared holy but practically we're not. We are to pursue holiness. That is, that is what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That practically we become looking more and more like who we are positionally in Christ. We have been declared righteous. Therefore, practically pursue righteousness. That is the putting away of all sin. And the motivation you see on your handout that Peter puts forth here is Christ himself. That's the therefore of this passage. Look to Christ for your resolve. Christ was fully God, and yet Philippians 2 says he, he laid down the prerogative of his deity, the pleasures of that, to take on humanity and suffered, even to the point of death on a cross. Christ experienced the suffering that we face. He, he experienced the death that we face. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed, to be reviled, to be beaten, to be spat on, to be subjected to unjust suffering, for your best friends to betray you, for them to deny you. Christ knows all of that, and yet his face was firmly fixed on the Father. Arm yourselves with that resolve. Why? Because the Christian life, you see it there, it's a war. And we must be prepared to effectively and rightly fight it. And the weapons are not physical, they're spiritual. Go to Ephesians 6. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the truth of God's word. Arm yourself with the promises of God's word. Arm, or even in Romans 15, 4, Paul, Paul writes, I, I, I give you these scriptures so that you would have the encouragement and that you would have hope to see that all throughout history there's a, there's a one true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent that was faithful. Faithful. And you'd be encouraged by that. Arm yourselves with God's faithfulness. Resolve to prepare yourself to stand firm even to the point of death by looking to Christ. Remember that Christ's sufferings were the very thing that accomplished God's purposes. It disarmed Satan as we saw in verse 22 of chapter 3. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll do what? He'll flee. Resist. 
fight. And that's what Peter is saying in verse 4-1. That, 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 in, in, in that in that sense, you've ceased from sin. Not that we're perfect in this life, because we won't be. We will always struggle with sin in this life. The point is this, is that, that if you want to grow in holiness, you must engage in a daily battle with sin and the flesh. And the warfare begins in your mind. It begins in acknowledging who you are and who am I in Christ. It, it begins with seeing everything that way through the lens of a believer. To engage every day, to take every thought captive, as 2 Corinthians 10 says, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought that comes in our mind, take it back to the Word of God. Does it jive with the Word of God? Then keep it. If it doesn't jive with the Word of God, then trash it. Taking every thought captive. Even that's a battle. And this battle will be consistent. What you battle with today may not be with what you battle with next month, in six months, or whatever. But it's still, there are battles to be fought. And what Peter is saying is in this standing firm on grace, in this resolve to stand firm in grace, there will be suffering. You draw a line in the sand and you take a stand on something, listen, there will be opposition. And Peter is saying... Christian suffering is an indication, that's the fill-in, that you've chosen Christ over this world. And in that sense, listen, in that sense, suffering shows that you're through with sin. And death ultimately pictures this. A Christian that is suffering for, for the Lord's will, that is suffering because he's drawn a line in the sand and is willing to not budge, that shows that, that, he is, that he's seeking to be done with sin. You see the point? He's drawn a line in the sand. He's identified the enemy. He's identi and, and by grace, he's been saved. And he says, I'm going to stand firm on that grace. I'm not doing that anymore. And in that sense, in that sense, you're done with sin. And the willingness to suffer proves that. Again, look to Christ. The Christian who refuses to stand, who gives in to culture and all, they're, they're not done with sin. At least mentally, they haven't made that resolve to turn our back. Suffering shows the resolve that you've, that you've resolved to be done with sin. Not Again, not that you'll be perfect, but you understand the point that, that I'm not pursuing that. And, and that's the warfare. That's the battle. Suffering shows that, that we have chosen God and His will over the pleasures of this world. That we've resolved to do that. And Jesus Himself, again, Peter having walked with Jesus and lived with Him those years, and no doubt He's recalling to His mind everything that Jesus had said to, to Him and the other disciples. I mean, you think about... Think about Jesus' words. I want to do this in opposite terms. Jesus said, if you don't suffer as a believer in this world, it's because you've chosen the will of man over the will of God. That's, what, that's the opposite of what Jesus said to his disciples. But it's true. Suffering proves that you're my disciple. So guess what? Not suffering shows that you've refused, that you've refused to choose. Or not being willing to suffer. Jesus says, if you won't suffer, if the world... He says this, it, the world will hate you. Why? Because you're my disciple. Therefore, we've got to think through this. If the world loves us, it might be because we're not his disciple. It might be because we haven't stood firm. We haven't drawn a line in the sand. It might be because it's not clear to the world whose we are. I mean, if, 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 you, if you do suffer as a believer, Jesus made that very clear, that, that it is a mark that you have chosen God over this world. And so Peter says, resolve to stand firm. Be willing to suffer before a watching world. It shows your true allegiance. And so this begs the question for you and I to ask of ourselves, what does the evidence of my life reveal about my true allegiance 
What does the evidence of my life reveal about who I'm truly living for? What does the evidence of my life say about whom I'm really following? Because Jesus made it very clear, and this is the lie of Satan, that you and I can serve both man and God at the same time. That we can serve the world and God. That we can straddle the fence. That's a lie. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love the one, you're going to hate the other. And Peter is, Peter is echoing that. He's saying, believer, Christians, you see it on your handout, must intentionally arm themselves with the decisive intent to pursue holiness. And every single, every single believer in this room today faces, faces this choice. Do I take the path of least resistance? Meaning, do I go along with the values and norms and practices of this world? Or do I choose to stand firm in God's grace and be obedient to God even in suffering? Every person in this room faces that choice. And our willingness to suffer, our, 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 our willingness to stand firm, no matter the cost, shows who we have chosen. And Peter is saying, resolve to choose God no matter what. And in choosing God, turn your back on sin. Don't fool around with it. Don't mess with it. This is what Peter says. I mean, Paul says in, 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 Roman, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is just not in my notes. Forgive me, but it's coming to my mind here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice of God. Listen, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. No filthiness and silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting for saints. You see the point? For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's an indication of who you've chosen. That you've turned your back on sin. Resolve to pursue holiness. But not only in, in verses 1 and 2, resolve to pursue holiness. I love what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, for the time already is past sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable, abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. You know what Paul, Peter is saying there? Look, and I think all of us would, if we were honest, if we really got down to it, you spend enough time fooling around with the things of the world pre-salvation. That's what he's saying. You spend enough time playing around with things that are dead. Things that want to steal, kill, and destroy you. And he's saying to choose Christ is to be done with our old ways. To choose Christ is resolved to turn away from that which you used to run to and that which you used to love and that which you used to be known for. You spent enough time, you spent enough time, however short or however long that was, you spent enough time fooling around with the things of this world that are dead. That's what he says. And again, it's the will of God versus the will of man here. Opposites. No matter when you came to Christ, young or old, you spend enough time, too much time, on the things of this world that lead to death. By God's grace, Colossians 1 says, He transferred you out of the domain of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light. Christ's kingdom. Live according to the ethic of that kingdom. Live to the glory of the king of your new kingdom. I mean, and think about, think about just the reality of, of bringing to your mind these things that, that Peter, and I put them there in your handout, that Peter has already said. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2, he reminds you, believer, you've been sprinkled with Christ's blood.
In, in verse 14, he says, when you were adopted through faith, we left the world behind and all of its passions. Verse 14. Verse 15, he says, you're now called to be holy. He says, therefore, as you are holy, as your father is holy, you too be holy. You're called to holiness as your father is holy. Again, res, res, showing off the character of your father. Every, every family in here has characteristics, has traits. When, when you think about families, you, you think about those. The characteristic, the trait of God's family, you know what it is? Holiness. Another way of saying it would be righteousness. Same words. Verse 17 through 19, he says, You've been redeemed by the very blood of Christ. Therefore, live that out. And Peter has already recalled all this to their mind. Therefore, he says in verse, Therefore, live to the will of the one who has saved you through the death of his son and the resurrection of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. You're in the gospel. God is redeeming taking us back to that original creation that was marred by sin. The idea of creation is huge in, in the Bible. God is making you a new creation. He is, he is undoing what was done in Adam. Christ in Romans 5 is seen as a, as a new, as a better Adam to undo that which was, was done in us through sin. You're a new creation. He's restoring. He's redeeming. Live that out. Stand firm in that. Old is gone. New has come. We who were once estranged from God, alienated from God through sin, now have been reconciled. We have been adopted. We cry, of, Romans 8 says, of which we cry out, Abba, Father. And yet, even there in Romans 8, it connects it to suffering. If indeed, if indeed we are willing to suffer for him. Peter is taking us back. Again, he's recalling to us our new identity. Our new, you see it there. Our new identity demands that we live in a way that is weird to those around us. Again, our new identity. That's in verse 4. You see it in verse 4. In all this, that you don't go to these things. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. And because of that, guess what happens? They malign you. Why do they malign you? Because you're different. You're a new creation. You're different than who you were pre-Christ. You go to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul lists in, in all these things and he says, but you were washed, you were cleansed with the blood of Christ. Therefore, you don't run back to the same dissipations. And again, this isn't, this isn't about, you know, you, you, you ask yourself, in what way am I weird? And this isn't weird. Some people are just weird. This is weird on purpose. You know, this is weird because of who you are in Christ. Because you're holy, you've been declared holy, because you've been set apart, because you're declared righteous. It's an identity-sourced weirdness. Resolve, he says, resolve to be through with sin. Resolve to embrace the will of God no matter what. Why? By looking at the cross. By looking back at your Savior. Show off the greatness. 1 Peter 1.9 talks about, or 2.9, declaring the excellencies of the one who saved him. You realize by not running to that stuff, you know what? You know why you were saying to your old friends, I found something better. I don't need that stuff anymore. You know why? Because I found something better. I don't need that anymore. And that in and of itself, your old friends are going to feel judged by that. They're going to they're accuse you of things. They're going to they're hate you because of that. Listen, you're not judging them. The word, the word has judged them. You're simply giving, you're, what you're doing is you're being salt to them by maintaining your difference and you're creating a hunger and a thirst in them. You're actually, you're, you're condemning them and leading them to repentance. The hope is that they would turn to Christ. 
but you running back to the same things you once did do nothing of speaking to the excellencies of Christ. Stand firm. Students, if that's you on your campus, if, if you're being accused, of, just because you're, again, if you're following Christ and your goal is to glorify Christ and you're maligned for that, stand firm. College students, stand firm. It, it, adults, whoever, if, if, they make fun, if the world makes fun of you because you don't run to the same things they do, if you don't look for identity in the same things they do, even if you used to, listen to me, Peter says stand firm. And in doing that, again, you're preaching the gospel to them. I have found some, I, I, Christ is better than that. Christ is more satisfying than that. That's the point. You see, again, you're declaring, as he said in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, you're declaring the excellency. If you choose one thing after over another, you know what you're saying? That one is better than that one. That's the point. I've, I don't need that stuff anymore because I've found an identity. I've found a hope that endures. And I don't need that worldly stuff. Resolve. So satisfied in Christ. We don't need that junk anymore. And listen, the world, the world will see that as an indictment upon them. But it's really us appealing to the greatness of Christ. They, they'll, feel, they'll feel judged. They'll feel, but listen to me, it's called conviction of sin. And God uses us as believers. Again, Romans 2, 4, do not think lightly, lightly of God's kindness and his tolerance and his patience, knowing that it's that that leads you to, to, to forgiveness. Stand firm. Again, Peter is no doubt recalling back to Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if a salt loses its saltiness, it's of no use. A bulb that burns out, that stops shining, no use. Light and dark, light and salt. Be salt and light, he says. Food that, ha food that lacks salt, you notice. Sprinkle a little salt on there. You notice. And in Christ, we have found our hope, our fulfillment. We don't need the things in the world. Why? Because we're so satisfied with Christ. That's the picture to the world. That's what we were meant to be. We, we've spent enough time fooling around with the things that, that, are, that are designed by Satan to kill us and destroy us and lead us away from God. Turn our backs on death. Turn your faces to life. And Peter closes here in verses 5 and 6 with, a, with really a stark reminder for everyone in here. But they... Those people that malign you, listen, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to will of God. I, as I was studying this week, I, I read something and it, it made, me, made me think and... and, and I wanted to pass it on and get us all thinking. The, the, the gentleman asked this question. What do you think somebody who knew nothing about Christianity would, con would conclude about Christianity if they looked at Christians in North America? If only they looked at Christians in North America. What do you think they would conclude about Christianity? What do you think they would conclude about what is most important? Let's say for three months they observed you they observed Christians, and then and, and they even interviewed us. From their observation, you, I mean, you interviewed them after three months. From their observation, what would they conclude matters most to Christians? What are we living for? 
And then he said, suppose we could take these same individuals back to the New Testament. And, and we gave them a New Testament. And we said, just read the New Testament. Just read the New Testament for three months. What, what, what do you think he would, what do you think this person would conclude might be different between believers in the early church and believers today as to what was important to them? Would it look different or would it look the same? I think if they read the New Testament honestly, I think if we all read the New Testament honestly, here's what we would conclude about Christianity. That, that, is a, that it is hard on an earthly level. That Christians will face many obstacles. That Christians will face a lot of opposition. And yet, nevertheless, you can faithfully endure and have joy because your hope is in Christ. I think that's what you would conclude. That's what I conclude when I read the New Testament. That, that, that what matters most is eternity. That what matters most is God's glory. What matters most is what God thinks about you. And, and, and at the end of the day, His judgment. But, but how would that differ if they looked at, at, at Americanized Christians, let's say? I mean, I think about verse Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I think about Romans 8, 17, that we're indeed Christians. It says, if we indeed suffer with him. I think about Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer That word, that word granted is grace. It's been graced to you. I, the challenge for me is I, I've got to come to these, these verses and ask, you know, what do we do in America with these verses? Because the challenge is, if we're honest, when we read those verses, we think about, we think about believers in foreign nations. We immediately say, oh, well, that's, that's for those believers in China. You know, that's for those believers over here. That, that's for those believers over there. Listen to me. That's for those believers everywhere. Everywhere. Not just in a foreign nation where, where, where the rules are different. That's everywhere. And, and the reality is, listen... Peter's point is that if you submit, if you seek to follow the Lord, you're going to suffer. Later on in verse 12 of this chapter, he's going to say, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Same thing you would read if you read 2 Timothy 3.12. Don't be surprised. Suffering, listen, if you will stand firm, you'll be blessed. Because the reality is this, suffering in and of itself doesn't automatically produce holiness in the believer. Suffering can produce bitterness, it can produce uh, distance from God, if you don't deal with it properly. And that's Satan's goal. And that's why Peter is saying, stand firm. If we submit to it by trusting the Father, if we submit to it by standing firm on the promises of God, if we submit to it saying, you know what, no matter what, to the glory of God, I'm going to seek to not budge, that's where it produces holiness. That's when it produces character. That's where it produces maturity. The, the one who gives in to temptation isn't really tempted. It's the one who stands firm in the temptation. That's the person that's really tempted. That's the person that grows. It's, it's about standing firm. Listen, you could put 200 pounds on a bench press all you want, and you can lift it off the bar. You know what it's going to do? It's going to go through my chest. It does nothing. You've got to push back. 
you got to push back against the resistance in order to build muscle, in order to build character. you got to resist. you got to stand firm. I mean, I can go, I, it may surprise you, but I can, be, I can curl five pounds. I could go stand in a gym and curl five-pound barbell all day long. What's the point? Because there's no resistance. Now, you put 10 on the curling arm, and like, ooh. You know? There's resistance. There's straining. And I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm saying resisting because we have been saved. We're standing firm on grace. And what Peter's saying, you see it there, suffering often reveals what or who we are are trusting in. Suffering reveals that. You can read that in Deuteronomy 8. God did that, why? To reveal what was in their heart. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writing to Christians, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Listen, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? What's the test? Is Christ in you? Is he your hope? Do you pass the test? Is Christ in you? Not do you go to church, not do you give, not, no, no, is Christ in you? Is he in you? And when you wonder if it's worth it, when you wonder if, if it's real, listen, look, there are days where I, I wonder that. Listen, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it to get up and plow and plow every day and till the soil and plant seed? Is it worth it? And listen to me. The beauty of hiding God's word in your heart is when Satan assails me with those doubts, I go back to the gospel and I say, it is worth it. I mean, I feel like it's worth it, but my mind, my mind says it's worth it. And I go back to the Gospels, and I go back to faith. I go back to the cross, and I remind myself it is worth it. And I remind myself of what Christ did, and, and it's worth it. And that it's not empty. It's not empty. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. What Peter's saying is the world's judgment of you, believer, is not final. Physical death, you see there in the hand, that is not the final verdict for our lives and what matters most. That's what he's saying. I mean, from the perspective of the skeptic, think about it. Christianity seems empty. What advantage is there in believing in Christ if, if you're just going to suffer more in this life and then you're going to end, you're going to die like everybody else died? That's what Peter answers in verses 5 and 6. We, we need to be able to answer that question. And, and Peter gives you an answer, and, and it's there on your handout. Though your suffering may last your whole life, it is actually only temporary. It's not the final verdict. There, there's a judgment. Look, death is not my judge. God is my judge. And, and the world is going to seem to judge you to think you're judged by dying. And, and Peter says, that's not the judgment you're concerned with. It's God's final judgment. And Christianity is true and, and contrary to popular belief. It's true not just for those who believe it. Truth is truth. It's not relative. Listen, what's the, what's the capital of Florida? Tallahassee, I grew up there. Are you arrogant and, and, and intolerant for saying that? No. I mean, are you being rude to Tampa? Like, ah, oh, Tampa, we're mad. You're not being rude to Miami. Listen, it's truth. And here's where it boils down to. People will say, yeah, but, but that's, we know that's true, and with religion it's different. Listen, truth is truth is truth. No matter if it's the capital of a state 
or if it's that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You and I need to resolve to the fact that Jesus Christ is as much the only Savior and the only way to get to heaven as Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. That's the resolve Peter's talking about. Not, well, if you want to think Miami is the capital, you go ahead and think that as long as you're sincere. You're sincerely wrong. Well, I like to think, I like to think of Tampa as the, Florida, as the capital of Florida. Well, stop it. It doesn't matter. Tallahassee is the capital. But the problem with us is this. We're le- if we're honest, we, we're less convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life than we are that Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. That's the problem. Because nobody nobody, nobody's mad about you saying Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. You say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Jesus, it's on. But is it true? And if it's true, then stand up for it. If it's true, resolve to defend it. No different than you would say to somebody, no, Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. That's the problem. Are we more convinced? Listen, we ought to be more convinced of what John 14, 6 says and the rest of the promises of the Bible than we are that Tallahassee is the capital of Florida because they can change that. Again, truth is truth. It doesn't matter on what we think about it. And and what Peter is asserting here is that that Christianity is a universal claim to the world that Jesus Christ is the only way. The road is so narrow that it's one way, and if you believe that, it's going to usher in persecution. But you know what he's saying? Stand firm. And the standing firm is proof that you believe that. And what he's saying is this. When the world judges you, even if they kill you because you believe that, listen... That's not the verdict that matters on on how valid your life is. God is going to be the one that ushers in the final verdict to determine the truthfulness of your life. Believers and non-believers die. The world would say, see that? Christianity isn't real. Peter's saying, that's not the final verdict. That's not the final verdict. And we need to live that way as well. Believer, listen. Here's what's held out to you. Eternity with your creator. If you believe in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. If you deny that, eternal condemnation in hell. I'm sorry, that's what the Bible says, so I'm going to say it. I don't, it's, it's not popular. It's true, though. The confrontational truth of Scripture, and you see it there, is that no person escapes God's judgment. And the judgment is based on who do you say that Christ is. That's just the re- We've got to resolve that, that. But we've got to resolve that that's not a rude thing to say. You're offering hope to somebody when you share the gospel. You're offering eternal life to somebody when you share the gospel. You've got to be... But, but if you're not convinced, if you haven't resolved that, then, then you, listen... Resolve that. And, and Peter reminds him, you see it on your handout, that the gospel preached to them and believed by them gives them hope. Not only for this life, but for all eternity. And even if Christ doesn't rescue you currently from your trials and persecution, listen, Christ still is true because eternally he's going to rescue you from condemnation. Therefore, stand firm. And, and the beauty of this in verses 5 and 6, think about this. You're talking about promises to build your life on. Look at your handout. Christ is our defender even in death and after. Do you realize that Christ is your defender even after you die? He's defending you. First John 2, 1 says, Dear children, I write these things to you so that we will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word literally, it means defender. Christ is your defender. Satan accuses you. Chris is this and Chris is that. And Jesus approaches the bench and he says, You know what? He is all that. But you know what? I gave my blood for that. I forgave him through my blood. You're free. You're free. 
redeemed. Satan stands accusing, accusing, and accusing. You know what Jesus Christ stands? Defending, defending, defending his own, even after death. It speaks to the sufficiency of Christ, and that ought to be a huge encouragement to us. That death does not invalidate, it does not bring into question our salvation. It simply confirms it. I mean, you see how great a salvation, do you see as we sang this morning, how firm a salvation we have? That even death can't hamper it? And you see it on your hand now, we don't judge the value of the gospel based on how things go this side of eternity. God will do that. And the goal, the last one, the goal of Jesus Christ alone offers this hope. Not only for this life, but life for beyond the grave. Stand firm. Be resolute. And I read this, I read this, this week, and I, I, it was a phenomenal, I felt like it was a phenomenal illustration for this sermon as we close. There, there's an animal, it's called the ermine. And it's a very small animal known for its, its snow-white fur. It, it lives in the forests of uh, northern Europe. And God has put in this animal an instinctive drive to protect its white fur from being soiled. And the, 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 the interesting thing is, is that hunters, they, they, love to, they want to find these animals because of their white fur... And they'll capitalize on this. So instead of, instead of setting a trap, listen to what they'll do. These animals live in the clefts of the rocks and the mountains. And so they'll find these animals' homes and they'll coat the animals' homes with tar. Okay? So, so then the hunters then will... So the whole interior of their home is coated with tar. So then the, the, the hunters then will hunt these animals, they'll send out their dogs, and when those animals sense the dogs coming, what does the natural instinct for that animal do? Is to go back to his home, to go back to the protection of his home. Listen to me. When that thing goes back to its home and realizes that it's coated with tar, and that tar will soil its fur, you know what the animal does? The animal chooses to die instead of soiling its fur. It doesn't go in its home. Why? Because it will soil his fur. He will face the enemy. He'll face the dogs. He'll fight them, even to his death. Why? Because he doesn't want to soil his fur. I think about if we would see ourselves that way. If, if we'll grasp Isaiah one eighteen. That though our sins were scarlet, he's washed them white as snow. And sin and all this stuff, it soils our fur. James says it stains. I pray that we would have this kind of resolve that even if it, even if it were to cost us our life, we want to represent Christ. We don't want to soil our fur.